pleasure to be with you all today. I'm very pleased to share the pulpit of your pastor. He's a very gracious man to let an outsider intrude for a whole week, and I'm grateful that I can share what the Lord has placed on my heart. We're going to be talking in our Bible conference about that theme of what is great, the greatest. Our first study is, who is the greatest? And I would ask you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of this portion of the life of Christ that, in its context, goes back to that great statement of Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus asked, who am I? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what follows after that through the transfiguration to this point is really asking that question, what is greatness? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Please hear the reading of God's holy word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we have had the privilege to open your word. We now have the opportunity to engage it. We ask that your spirit might be our teacher this day, that you would illumine us, to the great truths that the Lord Jesus Christ taught in this passage, that these words would be written upon our hearts and that they would shape our minds and our lives and our actions and our relationships. We thank you for the great joy of this fellowship in your word with you, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Undoubtedly, you remember the great boxer Muhammad Ali, sometimes known as Cassius Clay. He was the man who said, I am the greatest. Remember the rumble in the jungle, the famous fight where he's on top as the world's champion. Three times, I think, in his life, he won the title and lost it and won it back. I am the greatest. Well, that question of greatness is found in other areas. We've just gone through quite an extraordinary election period. And so the question is, who's going to be the greatest politician and the great uh, competition to be the next president of the United States? Whether you like the conclusion of the election or not, someone's on top and they are going to lead. Uh, Perhaps in the scientific realm, you have debated who's the greatest scientist who ever lived. Is it Einstein? Is it Newton? If you like basketball and baseball and you happen to be from Cleveland like I am, you've had a little bit of taste of greatness, right? That's where I grew up. So, you know, the Cavaliers, can you believe it? And the Indians were that close. They just lost it in the last second. 
Now, look, I've adopted Philadelphia as my home, but, you know, you can't lose your boyhood love. There's always a little bit of a delight and agony in watching it. But being the greatest is something that we understand, we appreciate, we identify with. And we love to be close to people who are great. There's something magnetic. The gravity of their persona draws us in, and we just want to be in the room with them. I can still remember as a child uh, in the seventh grade, going on my, our Washington trip and shaking hands with the president of the United States' right-hand man, the vice president. I didn't get to the president. But I didn't want to wash my hand for a whole day. I said, wow, I touched the hand of one of the greatest men in the world. And so we can understand why this question came up. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, as we try to address this question, first of all, let's keep in mind how we get to this account in Matthew 18 and verse 1. As I've already said, there is this context, a greater context, that brings us right to Peter's proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of the living God. Now, this comes up in the Gospel of Matthew. And as a good Bible student, you'll remember the Gospel of Matthew is really the gospel of the kingship of Jesus Christ. It begins with a genealogy that demonstrates there is no one who has more a right to be on the throne than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's traceable back to the very foundation of Israel. He is the one who comes as the messianic king. The royal line comes directly to him. You can debate the genealogies. It seems that when you compare Matthew and Luke, there's at least two ways that Jesus has a right to be on the throne. He's the greatest. He's the king. In fact, when Peter confesses him as the Christ, the next thing that happens, he shows that he's so great, he says, I'm going to tell you the future. Now, they didn't understand it, but he said, you need to realize... I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. That's pretty great when you can say you're going to conquer the grave. He says, I'm so great that you're going to suffer in this world. We heard about the persecuted church. He says, but I'm going to suffer and you are too. And you are to take up your cross, whatever it is. And you follow me. You follow me because I'm the king. I'm the king who rules with a cross and a crown. And then we find in chapter 17, as the inner band of Jesus' disciples go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the external world rolls away, and suddenly the glory of the Son of God is manifest. And the great heroes of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, are there, and Peter and the other disciples are overwhelmed with the glory, and they even hear the voice of God saying, This is my Son. Peter had confessed Him, but the heavenly voice confesses it as well. This is the Son of the living God. And then we read after that, there is a father with a son who's demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't cast out the demon, even though they had been with the Lord and been trained in His kingdom advance. And only the Lord could do it. Only He had the greatness to do it. And then again, we find that He predicts the future and says, I'm going to die and rise again. He emphasizes that He's the Lord of history. And then right before our account, there's that wonderful story of the fact that taxes had to be paid, the temple tax. You know, it's been said there are a couple certain things in life, death and taxes. And so... Peter was asked, does your master pay taxes? And he said, oh, of course he does, but 
They didn't have any money to pay the tax. And he says, Lord, what do I do? He said, well, Peter, you're a fisherman. Go put in your line. You pull it out, you'll find in that fish's mouth exactly what it's going to need to pay the tax for you and me. Could you imagine what it was like for Peter to go fishing and he catches the fish and there's the coin? Exactly the right amount, just as the Lord said. Who is like this? This is the greatest human being on the earth. No one can compare to him. And he even said, as he explained to Peter, who really pays taxes? Does the king's son pay taxes or is it the hoi polloi, the rest of the people? And he says, well, the son of the king doesn't have to pay taxes. He said, that's right, implying I'm the son of the king. But so there's no objection. We're going to pay the tax. Go do the miracle. Now, if you're following this story that leads us to this point, Isn't the very question almost absurd? At that time, it says in verse 1, at this moment when all of this is unfolded, the story that magnifies the greatness of Christ so that he's unparalleled, he is utterly glorious and unlike any other human being. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus instead of saying, you are the greatest in the world, you are the greatest in the kingdom. They ask what's almost an absurd question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's almost like they said, we don't even want to talk about you, Jesus. We want to know who the rest of us will be great in the kingdom. We want to be first. We want to be important. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's this disciple. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven had come in the king from heaven. And they're asking who is the greatest in the kingdom. Now the Lord is extraordinarily kind and merciful because he does not rebuke them by saying, what an absurd question. Haven't you caught what's going on in my ministry? Haven't you heard what I've said? Haven't you seen what I've done? But instead, he condescends, he stoops down, and he cares for his disciples with the patience of one who loves them far more than they'll ever understand or ever know. And so in verse 2 it says, He calls to him a child, and he put him in the midst of them. Now the disciples had asked a question. We don't know which child. Probably just one of those families that were following to hear Jesus. He said, come over here. I want you, this little child. This little child obeys, trustingly comes doesn't say, I'm not going over there. I don't know what's going. He just comes. Little children are so delightful. They're willing to engage him. The child comes, and Jesus puts them, this child, right in the middle of the disciples, and he says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing Jesus begins to do in this passage is not to explain who's the greatest in the kingdom, but he's going to say, how does anybody get in the kingdom? There's something that is absolutely a sine qua non, something that is absolutely necessary, and without this, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is something that must occur. 
And he says this occurrence is turning from one's absolute self-sufficiency, self-confidence, self-congratulatory celebration of all of one's success, becoming like a child. Now, Jesus is not here teaching us that we are to be childish. He's saying that when we come to the kingdom of heaven, we realize that we have nothing that can qualify us to enter except the adulthood, the sufficiency of another. A child is utterly dependent upon the life of another. Every one of us, there was a time when we were absolutely helpless. We could not walk. We could not talk. We could not feed ourselves. We could not clothe ourselves. We could not protect ourselves. We had to be taught everything that we know. Utterly helpless. A child is utterly helpless. And Jesus says, that's what you must understand. If you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's not your pedigree or your nationality or your gender or your IQ or your accomplishments or your fame or your success. You come as one who has nothing except an absolute need that must be met by another. So we begin as we look at this context. They had entirely missed who is the greatest in the kingdom. It's Jesus. They, they were asking about everybody else. And they were thinking the greatness of the kingdom is, well, who's followed Christ the most? Who's given up the most? Who's preached the most? Who's converted the most? Who's had the most power, the most fame? Who's done what the Lord wants? And Jesus wipes that all out of the discussion and says, you can't even enter until you realize you have nothing. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, who are poor in spirit. That's where he began his ministry. He said, for these are those to whom belong the kingdom of heaven. They'd forgotten his very first words. The spiritually bankrupt, those that have nothing, but know they have nothing. They are the ones that enter the kingdom. I need to stop here and preach the gospel for a moment. Do you understand that there's no hope for you to enter into heaven if you're clinging to anything else? than the gospel of Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast and say, I'm the greatest, or at least I'm good enough. No, no one's good enough. If you are going to enter into the kingdom, you must become like a child that says, I need someone to care for me. And I'm going to trust that one who provides for my need. Martin Luther is one of our great heroes. Do you realize that next year is the 500th anniversary of his nailing the 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany? As he debated indulgences and launched a reformation that still reverberates to this day, and he did it unwittingly, he changed the world, and by the end of his life, he was a notorious and famous person. He was called the Great Reformer. 
the man who had rediscovered the gospel of grace, who translated the Bible into the German language, who launched schools so that both boys and girls could read the Bible, who redrew the map of Europe, who changed so many things. We could do an hour's lecture on how society changed because of Luther. And finally, he comes to his deathbed. And there as he's dying, he utters his last words. Wir sind Bettler, hoch est verum. The great scholar that he was, his last words are both German and Latin. And being translated, they are, we are beggars. This is true. He said, when we come to the kingdom of heaven and its gates, the only right answer when we are asked, why should I let you in is, because you have grace for one who has nothing and who longs to know you. Jesus said, come unto me, all of you that are tired and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This is the good news, that the gates of heaven open to those who come like little children, not because they're childish, but because they've grown enough to know they could never be good enough. A holy God's perfection can never be met by any human being. But the free gift of grace has come. Receive that which you can never earn or deserve, but one who is the greatest delights to give it to you. In this context of Jesus' greatness in the kingdom, He shows us that we must become like a child. And then that brings us to Christ Himself. Notice what it says in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see how Jesus turns everything on its head again? When we talk about the greatest, we say, I'm number one. I'm the world champion boxer. We're the world champion basketball team. I am the president of the United States elect. So what Jesus says, the one who's like this helpless child, this is the greatest in the kingdom. But that's everyone who enters into the kingdom. And that's the point. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's the one who knows he has no right to be in the kingdom and is there by grace. Grace levels the field. It's been often said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The greatest and the least, no matter who we are, come in the very same way. And we share in the greatness of the only one who is truly great. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He was not just looking at that child, but he was actually looking at himself, for he had become a child. Remember how it says in his kingdom, a child will lead them? We're getting ready to begin to look to the Advent season. Isn't it remarkable that the Lord of glory became incarnate 
and was not born into a royal family and placed into a golden crib, but he was born to a humble peasant family and he was laid in a feeding stall in a barn because his greatness had nothing to do with his humanity, but everything to do with God's bringing a child into the world. When Jesus put that little child in the middle of them, said, you must become like a child. This is his story. He who knew all the glory of all the infinite ages stooped down to become incarnate, to become a helpless child, the babe of Bethlehem. Just as this child was called, so from eternity past in the councils of the Godhead, the Father called upon His beloved Son to be the Redeemer of His people. He said, My Son, you are the child that will redeem the world. This one who became a child was placed in the midst of them. He was placed in a fallen world. In the fullness of time, He took upon flesh and He came into humanity in the midst of them, in the midst of the poor and in the midst of the wealthy. He walked this earth and like a child, He humbled Himself to accept the purpose of redemption of the Father as He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And then He says, Father, into Your hands I commend My Spirit. He trusted the Father as the curse of sin fell upon Him on the cross. This One who is suffering is humble and trusting the Father as a child. And yes, as that child who has conquered the grave, He rises again and He enters the kingdom and He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes unto the Father except through Me. As the one who has humbled himself as the Son in the triune Godhead, as the one who humbled himself in space and time in the Incarnation, as the one who trusted and humbled himself upon the cross of atonement, he has now been raised up and he's been given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is the Christ to the glory of God the Father. And it's in his humbling when we humble ourselves to be joined to Him that we become great. It is by our union with Christ, by our faith in His death and resurrection and His glory, and we humble ourselves and turn away from Him. It's in this way we become truly great because we enter into the kingdom and we are one with the greatest with the Lord Jesus Christ. All that we have and all that we will do and all that we will become finds its true fulfillment in our union with Jesus Christ. Today the question is, not only are you going to enter the kingdom, well, you must become like a child, knowing you have nothing. 
but then recognizing if you're entering into the kingdom, you are the greatest in the universe. Because by entering in through Christ, you become one with Him. You share in His glory. We're reminded today of the persecuted church that when they suffer, we suffer with them. And when there is glory, we share in them. The church is united in Christ. We share in His sufferings. We share in His glory. We share in His greatness. We are one in Him. We are the greatest in the kingdom because we are united in the child who has become the Lord. Do you see who you truly are? In yourself, in myself, we are nothing before God. In Christ, there is no one like us. That is why the Scriptures say if we know the Gospel, the sufferings of this present time cannot be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The greatest always receive the glory, but that's the glory that we share because we've entered into the child as little children and we share in the glory of His kingdom. This is the hope that gives us certainty as we go through life. So we've asked the question today, who is the greatest? We've been reminded that the context shows us that the only one who can be great is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the disciples entirely missed it. And so Jesus showed to them the truth of the childlike character of those that will enter the kingdom. And then he showed them himself as the one who makes us all great because he became the child that we might share in his kingdom and his glory. So if we ask the question, are you great? Well, if you're great today, it's because you know you have nothing to make you great except Jesus Christ. Now, what practical benefit might this have for us? Well, in this political season, I thought it might be good to end with a political application. Because in the pol- political arena, that's really what we're all about. Who had the greatest ground game? Who got the greatest number of electoral votes? Who's the greatest because they won the election? Well, do you know there was an election several years ago? Well, there was a candidate who ran for president, and he was unanimously elected. Let that sink in. He got every vote. And then he ran for a second term, and guess what? He was unanimously elected again. He got every vote. Do you know who that was? It was George Washington. I guarantee you that will never happen again. There will never again be another unanimous vote for President of the United States for two terms. And they wanted him to do a third, and he said, nope, two is enough. And he went home. Now, imagine if you could, in in your mind's eye as Americans, if we could go back to that moment of exhilaration for all Americans. The surprising victory that was unexpected comes. Britain concedes. King George makes the telephone call. George, you've won. You're the George who's now going to be the head of America. I don't know if it came at 2.30 in the morning through a transatlantic phone call or... Well, there's no telephone then. But the call came. The concession speech was given. And George Washington 
was now the victorious general. And he sat down and he wrote a letter. It's one of the most public letters he ever wrote. He wrote it to the 13 independent governors of the 13 states of the United States. He writes it as the victorious general. It's a long letter. It's quite remarkable. He signs it 13 times with that magnificent signature of George Washington. You see, you say, that's George right there. He had great penmanship. And in that great letter, he says, I now make it my earnest prayer. It's interesting. He writes a very public prayer. I know you're, you hear all the time George Washington never prayed at Valley Forge. I want you to know the only thing he had at Valley Forge was a prayer. He was a praying man. And here is a very public prayer. He says, I now make it my earnest prayer that God will enable all of us to do justice, to love mercy. Okay, now you're good Bible students. You say, wait a second. He's quoting Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. You know that verse. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But that's not how he quotes it. It's almost like he had gone to Westminster Seminary and he learned to read the Old Testament and see Christ there. I know they do that at other seminaries, but you know, I am from Westminster after all, so I've got to put in a little plug there. But this is what he says. I now make it my earnest prayer that God will enable us to do justice, to love mercy, and to imitate the divine author of our blessed religion. The way you walk humbly with your God is to follow after the likeness of Jesus Christ. Well, that might be a good application to this text. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to become like me, like a a humble child. You can enter the kingdom. But then he says, you must imitate Christ in three qualities, in his love, in his humility, and his commitment to peace. Now, I don't know how you feel about the elections at this point, but if we are going to become followers of Christ and imitate him, we need to love those that we disagree with politically. If you're candidate one, we need to be humble because at the end of the day, no candidate can get us to heaven or will ever do anything perfectly. And because we're such a war-torn nation after this long, vitriolic, debated election season, we need to be committed to peace, striving to live as much as lies within us with peace with all men. And then he makes this final thought, without these things, unless we imitate the divine author of our blessed religion and his love, his humility, and his peace, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Isn't it amazing the very truth that enters into our life so that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven is precisely the same truth that can restore a nation that's divided in a great debate about who is the greatest in the political season in which we've endured. It is becoming like Christ. That's how we get into heaven. By becoming like Christ, we share in His greatness. By becoming like Christ, 
we can even heal the public square and make a difference in this world. What Jesus is teaching here in talking about greatness is giving us the secret not only for eternity, but also for time. Following Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that anyone can ever do. I hope you put your trust in him, and I hope you see in him the one who brings you true greatness. And by being united to him, you become an agent of the greatest thing of all, which is to love God and love your neighbor, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. So come back tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy of studying your word. We pray that you will bless us with the truth of Scripture. We are so humbly and gratefully thankful that you have met the need that we could not meet. So today we come to you, not because we're worthy, but by grace we now share in your greatness. We pray that what you've done in us will overflow into the world. We praise you and thank you. We trust you. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.